The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right, so a brief review of our first couple meetings and then setting up our consideration of heaven and hell. Uh, our, our first week was primarily for the purpose of helping us to understand and see in the Bible that God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. I don't know if, are they going to have the keynote up there, Robert? Okay. Uh, I do have a handout if you, if you like to follow along. Um, so God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. And so we spent the bulk of our first meeting just looking at different passages where the Lord unashamedly talks about His providential and sovereign rule over all things. That suffering, evil, sin do not take Him by surprise. He is not morally responsible for evil in that sense, but He is providentially ruling over it. And we looked at things in Job's life, in Joseph's life, certainly in Christ, to see that illustrated. <clears throat> which is a good foundation for us to lay when considering suffering. Um, then, last time we met, um, we talked about God's good intentions for suffering, His revealed purposes for suffering. And those include our holiness, our perseverance in the faith, our spiritual maturity, our growth in and knowledge of God's Word, our encouragement of others, how God's comfort for us and our sufferings is meant to be used for the encouragement of other people who are suffering likewise. In our battle against self-reliance, suffering reminds us of our dependence on the Lord and takes away that veneer of independence and self-reliance. God providentially uses suffering to give us assurance that we are His children as we see Him working in our lives in, in discipline and in love, He is reminding us that we belong to Him. It includes directing our spiritual gaze, so turning us away from ourself and to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and ultimately using those things to glorify Himself. And I think the, the, God's sovereignty over that is, is necessary for those second things to be true. If He's not ruling over everything, then we can't really have confidence that He will fulfill His promises to do those things. And He does. So His sovereignty is directly related to the good that He brings about through suffering, trials, and so on. So we're talking about suffering in light of eternity today, and um, to, to suffer well as a Christian means to suffer with the end of all things firmly fixed in view. We need to have an eternal perspective. We need to be seeing through what God has revealed in His Word, what He has said He is bringing about, what has been secured by the death and resurrection of Christ, and where things are headed. So knowing the end makes a difference. We know God wins. Satan, sin, and death are defeated. 
And so suffering has no eternal future in the lives of God's people. Um, if, if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of this eternal perspective, then one of the easiest things that can happen is that suffering can leave us in despair. If our focus is only on our, our present circumstances, which may be very, very difficult and painful, with no view towards what God is doing in them, what He has promised to do in the future, then despair is an easy path to go down because we're robbed of, of hope. And so we may, you know, with our, with our mouths, you know, acknowledge, okay, so there is life after death, you know, there is an eternal future, but those things can go to the back burner of our minds. And so then uh, what can happen is the idea of eternity is more of an insurance policy and not a very present reality and hope for believers. And so saying that, we recognize that that's not just an easy default mode to be in. We don't just naturally gravitate towards the future, hopeful, anticipatory way of living the Christian life. There is a struggle in battling for that eternal perspective. And I think suffering, ironically, is actually meant to accomplish that. It, Satan would have us become inward, focused on, on the trial, despairing. The Lord means for us to look to Him and to anticipate the future. I got a, several quotes that I'm going to share with you today that come from some of the resources that I use that I found personally helpful. Um, the first one is from Ligon Duncan, who wrote, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, if, you, um, if you're not a super avid reader, but this is something that you would like to explore or read more about, the Ligon Duncan book is just two sermons put together. It's a very, very short book. You could read it probably in one sitting. If you do, this is a quote from Ligon Duncan. If you do not know Christ, then let your sufferings show you your need for a Savior. If you are already a Christian, then let your own suffering remind you that you are an undeserving, hell-bound sinner saved by God's mercy. I can't remember where this idea or quote comes from, but I heard the idea from Ligon Duncan expressed this way one time. This is not my original thought. Um, the idea was that um, for unbelievers, this world is as close to heaven as they will get. And for believers, this is as close to hell as you will get. So believers can be reminded in suffering that apart from Christ, our only future is eternal suffering. And unbelievers can be warned that their present sufferings are only a foreshadowing of eternal condemnation. Um, and so, again, the eternal perspective on suffering is really our focus today. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and in the midst of that, the... Well, we'll, we'll, hey, we'll talk about that more, uh, especially as we think about ministering to people who are suffering. We talked about that a little bit, but... Um, that, that, I think that's going to come up again at some point. Um, I've got a couple quotes from Piper that I found helpful as well um, on, on suffering and, and sin and eternal things. And the first one is, 
if God passes over sin, which is a trampling of His glory, He is saying, I and my governance of the world are cheap. He could have vindicated His righteousness by slaying you and me who have despised Him, but instead He vindicated His righteousness by slaying His Son. So part of our eternal perspective on suffering has got to be the perspective of what the Lord has done in dealing with sin. If we do not have an appreciation for the horrors and gravity and weight of sin and the cost of that in the life of Christ, it will completely warp our view of present sufferings. They will be inflated to the point where we don't see the light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. It'll be the eternal weight of sufferings compared to the, the light future glories to come. There will be an imbalance there if we cheapen sin and the sacrifice of Christ. So we want to hold in our minds the, the eternal perspective and the preciousness of the sacrifice of Christ if we are to have, I think, a right view of suffering in this present world. And so that brings us to a brief consideration of hell. The Bible speaks of hell as a place of unbearable and eternal suffering for those outside of Christ. Some references on your verse packet, beginning with Matthew 8. The sons of the kingdom will be... Um, I think I've, I may have that misquoted here. Open up an actual Bible. <laughs> I hope I gave you the right reference there. Starting in verse 11 in Matthew 8, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sorry, the context of verse 11 helped make a little more sense of that one. What I was trying to emphasize in quoting Matthew 8.12 was the idea of outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13.42, there's the idea of the fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says in Mark 9.43 and 48, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14, 10, and 11, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Um, there, are, there are some who consider themselves Christians who um, do not see hell as, uh, as eternal, who might hold to some form of annihilationism where unbelievers are simply destroyed and cease to be rather than punished eternally. And for a number of reasons, um, the first of which would be, I think, just the plain teaching of the Bible, I think that that's not the case. But we're going to 
I want to pull back another layer of that to help us see, I think, why. What, what's the root of why eternal suffering is appropriate for those outside of Christ? Because you'll find, I think, probably, that's one of the big hurdles for people who are not Christians interacting with Christian doctrine is the idea of an eternal hell. Um, how can a loving God send people to hell for all eternity? And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit as to why that, that, is, that is the right and just and good thing for the Lord to do. Um, and it's going to come back to what I said a moment ago of how God relates to sin and sinners. If God passes over sin, which is a trampling of His glory, He is saying, I and my governance of the world are cheap. Um, so it's clear then that, moving on in your packet, God is not indifferent towards sin. And hell serves as evidence of this. We see... Of course, even in the Old Testament, God is not indifferent towards sin. We're reminded in Exodus 34 that God is one who is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So it's established for us even in the Old Testament that God is not one who just sweeps sin under the rug and ignores it. He is not indifferent towards sin. And hell is another piece of evidence that God is not indifferent towards sin. He is holy, He is just, He is righteous. Sin will be judged justly. This has been one of the most helpful things for me in, in kind of thinking about hell and the justice of hell and the righteousness of God demonstrated in hell. This is also a quote from, from Piper. And I think if you're interacting with someone who has an objection to Christianity on the basis of hell, this might be a good way to shape your thinking about it and think about how you talk to them about it, and certainly for yourself. This is how a piper describes hell. Hell is a degree of suffering that corresponds to the, to the degree of the worth of the glory that you have despised. Hell is the requirement of a suffering that corresponds to the value of the glory that we have despised by our sinning, which means it is everlasting in its torment. I think that's one of the root issues here and why we have to insist on what the Bible teaches about hell as an eternal conscious suffering and not just simply the ceasing to be or the destruction of sinners. Because it is God's eternal glory that has been despised and offended by our sinning. And so the, the requirement of a suffering that corresponds to the glory that we have despised is, is what is right and just. Does that make sense? Go ahead, Timothy. <clears throat> yeah, and I, like Psalm 51 is a good example of that. Um, you know, David confessing his sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah, and he says, against you, you only have I sinned. So our, our sin is, like Timothy said, first and foremost against the Lord. And if we minimize, I, I think like the, the root of that 
complaint about hell and God's justice starts with minimizing sin. If we do that, if we start by cheapening what sin is, then we're cheapening the holiness of God, and you'll, you will go astray in lots of different ways there. And to, to your point, Timothy, when we, if that's not our perspective, then you're going to compare yourself and, and your sin to someone else. <clears throat> and so then you start looking horizontally. I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl. And so I kind of feel, you know, pretty good about myself, right? You know, I'm pretty cleaned up, you know, I... I try to walk the straight and narrow. I do the, do the good things. And the, the horizontal view of our, our righteousness is a tempting road to go down, but that's not the standard that we're being held to. Yeah, that's, you know, the idea from the opening of Romans is that in our unrighteousness we suppress the truth of God as He has revealed Himself. And so um, it's a consideration of eternal things has to take sin seriously. And to take sin seriously, what we're saying is we have to take the holiness of God seriously. And if we insist upon the perfect righteousness of God, then... When Jesus says, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, you can understand then why the disciples are horrified by this, looking like, how is my righteousness going to exceed that of the Pharisees? And that's the righteousness that's being demanded, and that's the righteousness that we have abandoned in sin. Yeah. Um, I don't want to preach the opening of Hebrews because we're getting into Hebrews in the new year. Um, but you, you, you hear that warning in the, I think it's the second chapter of Hebrews or maybe the end of the first chapter um, of despising so great a salvation. <clears throat> so 
in some ways, we're kind of reiterating what we've said before, that we, we need to have our focus in a Godward direction and not a uh, manward direction, I suppose. Moving on in your packet, um, one of the very comforting and encouraging components of this is that God's eternal justice in hell is what frees believers never to take vengeance because all sins will be accounted for. Some passages in Romans that are helpful. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then um, in Romans three twenty three and 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There is the idea of God's wrath being satisfied by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So to your, to your unbelieving friend or neighbor whose objection is, I can't comprehend of a God who you say is loving and merciful and you know all those good things, sending people to hell for all eternity. What we need to do is reorient the conversation around you need to not be able to comprehend. And the problem, that, the doctrinal or theological problem that Paul is presenting to us in Romans 3 is you need to have a harder time comprehending how a God who is holy and righteous and just would allow sinners into His presence. That really is the problem that has to be solved by the gospel. The, the manward attitude asks, how could God send people to hell? The Godward attitude asks, how could God allow people to dwell with Him? How in the world could God who is holy and just and righteous pass over former sins? and pardon sinners. That is the, the issue at stake that Paul is dealing with in Romans 3. The objection should not be how God could send people to hell. The objection should be how could God, people, how, how could God allow people into heaven. That, that is the issue that's at stake here. And it's in the provision of Christ where His love and His justice are perfectly satisfied. So, that... That would be, I think, helpful in your own thinking and maybe in conversations would be your orientation is, is wrong if your assumption is that we belong in heaven. That's the wrong assumption to start with. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but vengeance... And the idea of desiring justice is also a helpful apologetic. The fact that we have a sense of justice and know what it means to be offended and to desire justice is a helpful apologetic for the truth of God and the way He has ordered the world. Um, and it's, I, I probably should point this out more with my kids than I do, but there is a testimony to objective truth in the fact that we have a sense of justice and what it means to be wronged and to desire for wrongs to be righted. 
Um, but it also, because of God's promise of justice, frees us from revenge. We can't improve on God's justice. The idea is that if it's a believer who has wronged us, then Christ's death has satisfied the offense of that sin. And we can't improve on Christ's sacrifice. And if it's an unbeliever who has sinned against us and they remain outside of Christ, then that sin will be borne by them for all eternity. And so we can't improve on God's justice in hell. So vengeance is, is silly because it, it seeks to either improve on Christ's sacrifice or be worse than what is promised in hell. And neither of those things are within our power to do. We can't improve on God's justice. Say the name again, Timothy. I don't, not offhand. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of the, the psalmist who, uh, y'all help me out with the reference, this is a weakness of mine, where he, he's recounting how despairing he was in looking at the successes and the prosperity of the wicked, and he was like, I, I nearly stumbled. Like, but then his, his perspective, kind of like what we're talking about today, by God's grace was shifted to eternal things. And that's what's at stake here, is if you only see the part of the story where that guy is ripping people off and just succeeding at every turn and accumulating all this wealth, and, and you look at the life of a believer who's trying to live righteously and honor the Lord with all that we do, and it's like, well, what is this getting me? It's not getting me 
you know, a nice farm in California, um, the eternal perspective will help us see the road that that is on because that road doesn't terminate in a nice farm in California, whether it's spoiled by, you know, people who are after gold or not. That, that is the broad way that leads to hell. And that is where we have comfort as believers that, I mean, Paul talks about the stakes of this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ hasn't been raised, like, what are you, what are you after, believers? If you've got no future hope because Christ is still on the ground, you are wasting your time. The idea that Christianity is worth it if Jesus is still dead and buried somewhere is false. This is, not, this is a waste of time, and we are more to be pitied than all people if the things that we're saying about eternity are not true. I, I, we could go watch football or fish or do you, you know, whatever you want to, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The eternal perspective reminds us of what is at stake and where these roads go. Um, and if our perspective of, of sin and God's holiness and God's righteousness are biblical, then we will recognize, back to your packet, that being pardoned from hell in Christ reveals the depth of God's mercy. And that moves us then likewise towards mercy and forgiveness. So we talked about how God shows us mercy or comforts us in our affliction, and one of the uses of that is our comforting others. Timothy mentioned this a minute ago, that God's forgiveness of us, His mercy towards us, likewise motivates and empowers our own mercy towards others. We see this illustrated in uh, Luke and some other passages in your verse packet. Luke 6.36, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So God's relationship to us is meant to be reflected in our relationships with other people. And that also helps us It wouldn't be mercy if it was deserved, would it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, my family was on vacation this past week, and when you go to a theme park, if you like watching people, go to a theme park. Because, you know, there are all sorts walking around. And um, when you get tens of thousands of people in close quarters... You're going to bump into people, and there's going to be problems and headaches, and uh, you know you'll you'll see things that you you know you you wish you didn't see, and you wish your kids didn't see. And I find often that my inclination in those situations is towards you know frustration and irritation, 
and not like what you're saying here of pity for the lostness that's around us and sorrow. Yeah. So uh, I think it, the eternal perspective that recognizes what awaits people outside of Christ should be motivating us towards sorrow and pity and compassion more than anger and resentment and hatred. That is a difficult thing to um, see produced in us because our inclination is when we are offended to want to lash out, to want to get vengeance, to want to see that wrong righted immediately. Heaven, then, is our other consideration for today. So we've considered the gravity and weight of sin, what that means as an offense against God's holiness and the justice and righteousness of hell for those outside of Christ, but then God's mercy to His people in the provision of forgiveness and eternal life, and then dwelling with God eternally. And these things come to a head uh, as the Bible depicts Christ's return as a day of judgment on which he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, where the righteous will inherit the kingdom and eternal life. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34 and 46, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And these will go away into eternal punishment. There's the dot, 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 is the separation from verse 46. These, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, if it's right to say that hell is the requirement of a suffering that corresponds to the value of the glory that we've despised in sin, then you might say on the other side of that that heaven is a place of reward that corresponds to the value of the glory that we have treasured by God's grace in Christ, which is also right for it to be eternal and beyond our comprehension in its goodness and its mercy. Does that make sense? God's eternal glory is the determining factor in either a punishment that is eternal and horrific outside of Christ or a reward in Christ and with Christ that we have embraced by God's grace. So the eternal state then of God's people is one that is free from sin, death, and suffering. We see this in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 and 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's, again, we've got to ask ourselves, how is it possible 
that this is the eternal future awaiting anybody. If we understand the holiness of God and the gravity of sin, how is it that the Bible can promise He will be with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the context of this passage suggests that how that's possible is that God has made this people new. He has purified this people for Himself. There is no uncleanness, no sin, only those written in the Lamb's book of life who are prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This people is made suitable for heaven by God Himself. And that suitability comes from the wiping away of sin, the cleansing from sin, the purification from sin by Christ. So, if hell is illustrative of God's justice and holiness, we see heaven as illustrative of his love and mercy. <clears throat> That's the other thing you might talk to your unbelieving friend about is the, the focus on hell. If God is loving, how could he send people to hell? Well, don't forget to talk about eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of sin. And rec- We're not telling the people, like in the presentation of the gospel, the gospel is not like just information that you're going to hell, period. The proclamation of the gospel is an offer of salvation to all who will repent of sin and trust in Christ. It, I, I think the, the, the world will, will look at the, the proclamation of the gospel, and maybe sometimes we're guilty of this, as just we're informing you that you're going to hell. Just by the way, you're going to hell. What we're saying is that in the gospel... Pardon from hell is being held out to you if you will embrace Christ as your only hope. And so we need to make sure in our conversations they're not imbalanced on only trying to give some sort of explanation for the justice and holiness of God reflected in hell, but that what's being offered to you is freedom from that, pardon from that, forgiveness from that. Does that make sense? Um. In the promise of heaven, God promises glorified bodies to His people. See this in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. If I can find it. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. So the end of suffering in heaven is not disembodiment. It's not the, the ceasing of physical existence. It is the glorification of our physical bodies. <laughs> oh, no. But, I mean, that's another, you know, cultural... I, I tell you what, like, how many of y'all have been to... We get this so bad at funerals. I can't tell you how many funerals I've been to where the, um, either a person's eternal future is 
is announced by the preacher as somehow disconnected from Christ and the gospel, that it just, there's like the universalism, like, well, so he's, we, we want the idea of, a, of eternal life, but we can disconnect it from the gospel. That's one problem. Another one is to get too far ahead in our eschatology and have the person glorified this side of Christ's return. There is still, we're still living in the not yet tension of Christ's return. That things will not be perfected and made completely right and consummated until Christ returns. Um, there's a lot more that we could say about this, but we want to r- remind ourselves that the new heavens and new earth is not a disembodied spiritual state of existence where, um, you know, th- to exist physically in a body is somehow bad. That's a Gnostic belief. We believe that physical existence is good, that our bodies will be glorified, and we will have an eternal physical life. How, how is that secured? Because of Christ's bodily, physical resurrection from the dead. Again, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But if Christ, in fact, He has been raised, then... All of the promises of God are yes to us in Him. Um, one of the reasons this is important, I think, you know, we talked about this in our study of cults and the occult, is that there are a lot of belief systems that deny the goodness of what is physical and insist only on the goodness of things that are spiritual. Um, but the physical world is not inherently evil. It's fallen in sin and it will be purified and renewed. There's a new heavens and new earth coming. Not no heavens and no earth, but new heavens and new earth. And again, that's why the doctrine of Christ's physical resurrection from the dead is absolutely essential to Orthodox Christian belief. If we lose the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, then we have abandoned Orthodox Christianity. Further, the promise of heaven is a reminder that our present sufferings are incomparable, like Charlie mentioned, to the eternal glory coming in and with Jesus. The passage that Charlie had referred to earlier is on uh, your verse packet somewhere, I think. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, first, we'll read from Philippians 1, 22 and 23. Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, you know, we're familiar with that passage where Paul is wrestling with what is better for him. He recognizes that for him individually, it is better to be with Christ. But, in God's providence, he intended for Paul to be used for the good of believers in his earthly ministry. In his time as an apostle, uh, living and breathing on the earth, God had good works prepared for Paul that were not yet complete. That is held against his desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And then the passage that Charlie mentioned from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The image there in Philippians is like a scale. You've got the, your afflictions and your trials pressing down on the scale. And if you only look at that side of the scale, then it's going to feel super heavy. Paul is holding out the eternal weight of glory that is pushing so far down on the scale that your momentary afflictions are so light, they're kind of floating up there in the sky. And that is the perspective that we need to have because the cancer diagnosis or the job loss or the the marriage struggles or the addictions or, or whatever sins and trials that we're going through, again, if our focus is on them, the weight will continue pushing us into despair. The, the encouragement from Philippians is to continually direct our gaze to the grace of God, the mercy of God, the hope of glory in the future, and not look at our afflictions as... Um, I want to be careful here, especially when you think about ministering to other people. We don't want to be insensitive and say, our theology can't just be get over it, right? That's not, that's not helpful. That's not gracious. I don't think that's faithful to the Bible's commands for what it means for us to love one another and bear with one another and help uh, shoulder one another's burdens. The burdens are real. Paul's point in 2 Corinthians is that eternity so far outweighs them, one day you will see how, how far surpassing the greatness and the glory of God is and His grace to you in Christ to these afflictions. And that has got to be constantly the perspective that we're turning ourselves to. Otherwise, we will be given to despair. We talked about this, I think, the last time we met. Paul talked about how they just despaired of life itself. They thought they were going to die. They had given up hope. And if you remember what he said in that passage, he said it was to make us not depend on themselves but to depend on God. that The pressing down of suffering, God intends for His people to cause, that, uh, cause us to look to Him and to what is coming in Christ. It's to be a forward-looking response to affliction. Um, we've got to hold that also in tension with being sensitive and gracious in the way that we minister to people. What you don't want to take from that is your ministry to another person being, well, heaven's going to be a lot better than this, so you know, get over it. The cancer you know, doesn't compare to what's coming in Christ. That's true, and there are probably ways to say that that are better, but we need to be able to uh, hold the, the reality and the pain of suffering in our ministry to people while also gently reminding ourselves and others of eternal things. So I don't know if y'all have thoughts on that, like how that, where the rubber kind of meets the road and how you might minister to someone in acknowledging and comforting people in their pain and suffering, while also not just putting a shoulder around them, but helping being the one to, to turn them towards that perspective. Any thoughts on that? Go ahead, Timothy. (laughs) 
Death is a good example of that, right? Not, believers are called not to mourn as those who have no hope. The, the assumption is that there is mourning, but it's, it's got the hope of eternity there along with it. So timing, I think, is right. Wisdom and discretion are needed in putting the arm around the person and, and just having a ministry of presence and weeping with them and being a comforter. And then I think we also need to have our eyes open to uh, how a person, especially those that are close to us, are responding to those things. So where we see evidence of despair or anger or resentment especially as we see those things cropping up, I think that's opening our eyes to see where we may need to help that brother or sister have their perspective turned. Um, that takes sensitivity. That takes wisdom. Um, but there is much power in a word fitly spoken. Right? You can say the right thing at the wrong time. Um, and I don't know that I have all the right answers to this, but I think you're right in applying or seeking to apply wisdom to our ministry to other people. That, yeah, absolutely. That is a super important thing to point out. We talked about that a little bit last time from 2 Corinthians about God's comfort and our afflictions being used to comfort others. I, I've, it's not that if you haven't gone through a particular trial that you can't be useful in ministering to someone who is. That's not true. But there is, I think, um, there is something special and especially comforting in God bringing those people either to us who have experienced the same kinds of things, or sending us to people who are experiencing those kinds of things. Um, we may have very, you know, practical questions and like, how did, how did you walk through when, when your grown child was wandering from Christ? How did you, how did you do that? I, there are things I could say to a person who has grown children who are, wandering from the Lord that I think are biblical and I hope would be encouraging, but they aren't mixed with the experience of having done that. Um, this is why we've got to have our eyes open to other people, because the trials that we're going through are not in a vacuum. They're not meant just for our own growth in Christ. They're meant to bless others and help them to grow. So that's super important to see God's providence and who he brings along our path. Um, Real quick as we close, living in the in-between. Living in light of these eternal truths. How, how do we do this well? These are, I guess, kind of the typical Sunday school answers, right? We've got to read and meditate on God's Word. Fill your mind with the truth that our future in Christ is secure because of His life, death, and resurrection. Um, Psalm 119 is a great passage for lots of reasons. Psalm 119, i got a few verses quoted there. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 
This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So we've got to be immersed in the Bible. Reading, meditating, praying. Pray for a heart that is deeply satisfied in God. Psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, the weight on the scale. Knowing Christ far surpasses anything that we could attain or hope to attain or the sufferings of this world. So we need to immerse ourselves in God's word. We need to be given to constant prayer for our own satisfaction in who God is. I think singing is a great way to foster these things in our lives. Sing by yourself. Sing with your family. Sing with the church of the hope that we have in Christ. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I find that it may not necessarily be um, like hymns, but I don't know if you find this, but I don't know how you are with music, but the better mood I'm in, I find myself singing. I'll just be walking around the house and singing a song or humming a tune. I think we can train ourselves in singing the truths of the Bible as a way to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. And then we need to submit to the teaching, care, and discipline of our church. These regular means of grace that God gives us in His Word, in, his, in prayer, in sinking these truths into our hearts, maybe even through song, and in the people of God, He uses for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So that'll end our consideration of heaven and hell for today. And thank you for being here. Why don't we close with prayer as we prepare for the worship service. Father, you are eternally good and glorious. And so we pray for eyes to see the horror and offense of sin for what it is and so to enjoy and treasure the glories of the gospel even more. We thank you for sending Jesus as we celebrate Advent and, and think especially in this season about Christ coming into the world. We are grateful that in your love and mercy you have made a way for sin to be pardoned, for you to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. May that motivate our forgiveness and compassion towards others. Uh, may that empower our witness to the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.